where gene editing really took off was with the discovery and application of the CRISPR technology. Gene editing is, my, my favorite analogy is it's molecular surgery. So the way to think about it is that the CRISPR-Cas9 technology is a scalpel. We've, we are you know, bypassing a lot of pain that our colleagues have, uh, have had to deal with. And so I think we've been relatively successful so far in the delivery approaches that have been chosen because we're building essentially on the, in a sense, on the shoulders of giants. Um, I would love to see a future where there's even more uh, integration of the ELN um, with all of your laboratory instrumentation to make the porting of data uh, even more transparent and simple. You don't and know much about Tetra Science, do you? <laughs> That's going to sound like a plug to our audience, and I swear to God, it's not. <laughs> Hello, everybody. On this episode of the podcast, we are happy to host Andy Scharenberg, Chief Scientific Officer of Casebia Therapeutics. A few weeks ago, Casebia and its collaborators presented 10 papers and posters at the American Society of Gene and Cell Annual Meeting. To learn more about what they presented on, please visit www.asgct.org. Hope you enjoy this episode. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your personal background and how you ended up at Casebia Therapeutics? Absolutely. So uh, I'm a physician by training, and uh, I've been uh, in pediatrics uh, and uh, functioning as an immunologist at Seattle Children's since about uh, the year 2000. And when I arrived at Seattle Children's, um, I was interested in treating, developing new ways of treating patients that had immune deficiencies. And at that time, there was an adverse event in the clinical trial of gene therapy. So we were looking for new ways of doing uh, modifications of blood stem cells. These are the, the kind of the core blood-forming cells uh, in the bone marrow. And that, this was a very early time in gene editing. So I began starting to work in gene editing and work on uh, some of the basic technologies that you use to do that. And did that in a hybrid uh, manner for um, really till 2014. So and when I say a hybrid manner, I had some ongoing work in an academic lab. And there are some things that when you're developing a new technology are better done in a company. So I spun a company out of my lab. Um, that actually was later acquired by one of the other gene editing companies that's still around. And um, I got back to... Uh, um, working on a project at Seattle Children's in 2011 uh, for about, or rather 2014. And that project had progressed to a point in 2017 where I was looking for industrial partners and began to talk to uh, Jim Burns, who at that time was the new CEO of Casebia, and hit it off well with Jim and realized that Casebia was really a unique opportunity to take forward gene editing on a very broad scale um, into, the, into the clinic. So not only the, the project I was working on, but two other projects that we have ongoing at Casebia. One is a, a program for editing photoreceptors for inherited retinal diseases, and the other is a project for doing uh, editing of genes in the liver, actually for a variety of applications, but some of those involve things like clotting disorders such as hemophilia A. And why did you personally become involved in science? Uh, the, the opportunity to function creatively and just the, an absolute love of problem solving. So when you, at least for me, when I got into the lab and realized that there was there were things that were not known and I could do experiments to answer them and then the, the initial feeling you have of discovering something and being sort of the only person or the first person to know that, I found that addicting. And then the opportunity to make progress toward a particular longer-term objective for me 
uh, was very appealing, especially when that objective as a physician would involve new treatments for patients. Uh, and, and I found that just to be a profoundly um, meaningful way to sort of pursue my career. So as we touched upon, you have quite an extensive resume and a lot of different experiences. Which of those experiences would you say have proven most impactful over your career? For me, I think one of the, the my key formative experiences was um, my first stint in a real commercial biotech. So I had a spin-out biotech. And uh, I was working on some other projects in my academic lab at Seattle Children's, and I began to realize that I was trying to fund those through academic means, and it's very difficult to raise the money you need to do work um, translationally to move in and treat patients. So I had been talking with some, uh, a number of colleagues also working in the gene editing field uh, in a company called Selectus. And so uh, they actually asked me to be their chief scientific officer. So from 2011 to 2014, I actually commuted from Seattle to Paris in order to function as their uh, chief scientific officer. And it gave me the understanding of how you organize a group, which was uh, for a a specific objective, working with regulatory consultants and manufacturing people to make an actual product. And as an academician, those were new experiences. Nobody had that ever before, you know, done products like this. So it it was an opportunity to be in on the whole range, I would say, of cell uh, therapy drug development at the earliest possible time and a unique opportunity, I think, for for an academician. So for me, that is the start of what brought me to the uh, the ability and and to have the skill set to function effectively as a CSO at Casibia. Still cashing in on some of those frequent flyer miles. <laughs> I was the diamond for a long time and then lost it. So that's a, that's a hard thing to accept. It's hard to maintain. <laughs> so sounds like a pretty successful career up into getting Casibia. What failures or areas of falling short along the way did you learn from? Any come, that come to mind specifically? Well, I'm going to take heart from what Winston Churchill said, which is that success is going from one failure to the next without stopping. So I would say the first company I formed um, was a whole series of failures. Management failure by me, I was unable to get it funded, so I had to direct um, and, and apply for grant applications. Um, we, we had very good employees, um, and so I had been able to handpick some graduate students to, to invite into this company over a three or uh, four-year period of time. And so we could function effectively as a, as a team, but we, we never were understood, I think, organizational, you know, professional organizational management well enough to then take our own, our own therapies forward. So uh, the end result was to get acquired for really cool technology. And, and we still, with my colleagues, laugh about it. We had great science, terrible business. So that was, from a business standpoint, an utter failure. From a personal growth standpoint, a tremendous success. And that, those failures led me to realize I needed to really work in a, an environment with experienced people who really did know organizational management. So that was the selectus opportunity. And that uh, experience led me to realize, recognize that when I met Jim Burns, this is a guy I need to work with because um, uh, he's going to build an amazing organization and I will be carried along with that and not only have the opportunity to do great things within Casibia, but also another opportunity for personal growth that, that might be irreplicable. So you've been involved in gene editing now for over 15, 16 years. In your opinion, from the time that you've started, what has been the single biggest leap in life sciences, and maybe more specifically gene editing, but that you've witnessed over the past 15, 16 years? So I would say, um, I'm gonna answer that in two ways, which is that uh, technology grows incrementally. And so if you look at um, gene editing in particular, 
in 2006 and 7, we had we had the ability to do gene editing with um, classes of nucleases that existed at that time. Uh, those platforms actually have continued to incrementally um, be improved, and they exist today and are being used for translational and commercial applications. Where gene editing really took off was with the discovery and application of the CRISPR technology. And the reason for that is when we were working with these other classes of nucleases, you had to be a protein engineer. And so that's expensive and requires really niche expertise. So those were things I realized as a physician doing protein engineering in my academic lab, you know, other physicians aren't interested in that. I had to move that into a company. With CRISPR, anybody can can use the, this technology. And so it's now been applied so widely by so many people that the, the whole field benefits from that kind of, of uh, you know, very broad work. Any little incremental improvement, everybody can all of a sudden adopt it. And when there's hundreds of thousands of people using it, then, then the whole field moves much more rapidly. So I think the CRISPR technology was, was super impactful because it's so d- democratized uh, gene editing technology. Let's dig into a little bit at what you're doing at Casebia now. So can you explain the premise of the technology that you're working on there for both scientists and non-scientists alike? Absolutely. So gene editing is, it, the, my, my favorite analogy is it's molecular surgery. So the way to think about it is that the CRISPR-Cas9 technology is a scalpel. And we apply that uh, to do surgery on the genes in people's cells. And we're applying that in, in our, each of our three programs in slightly different ways. So in our tolerance program, we are essentially doing surgery on T cells, and we take these T cells out of a patient. So a T cell is a white blood cell that helps to fight infection. We take those out of a patient, and we do surgery on them so that we take T cells that make inflammation, and we convert them to T cells that suppress inflammation. And the idea of that approach is to create a, way, a new way to treat inflammatory diseases. For our retinal program, we're literally doing surgery on the photoreceptors in the back of the eye that sense light to inactivate genes that stress those photoreceptors out and and cause them to degenerate over time. And so if we can inactivate that gene, then we can restore normal physiology to those photoreceptors. And for our liver editing program, we use it as a scalpel to make an opening in the genome where we can put new information. So uh, one example is we, we make an opening in the genome and we put a new gene for a clotting factor called factor eight into the, the genome. It's now able to be expressed and restore normal expression and, and hopefully normal clotting to those patients. So for the, for the stuff that you're doing with the, the retinal uh, molecular surgery, so to speak, how does that differ from, say, what a company like Spark Therapeutics is doing and the recent therapy that they've pushed to market? Yeah, so Spark's approach is, I would, and I would say these are applied to different types of diseases. So Spark uh, has taken a disease where there's uh, a gene whose function is completely missing, and they put in a new copy of that gene to restore the function. The class of diseases that we're going after with gene editing technology are diseases where a gene has gained a toxic function, and that toxic function causes the photoreceptors to become stressed and over time to die off. And we inactivate that using our molecular scalpel. So we're actually going into the genome and inactivating that, these specific genes that are toxic, whereas Spark is putting a new copy of that gene. It probably exists outside the genome in order to replace the function of the malfunctioning genes that that, uh, that patient, particular patient has. Sort of touches on your point a little bit earlier about how CRISPR applied in many different ways raises the whole field. A- absolutely. So where have you seen other companies that are taking the approach you are with your technology address similar issues and maybe Spark isn't the best approach or the, the most similar comp, but where have they fallen in the past and what can you hope to learn from that 
with the direction of Casibia. So for gene editing technology, the um, we have uh, s- several what I would competitor companies in the gene editing space. Uh, nobody has a, a project to market, and so there's been I would say no failures yet. And we're also in the um, uh, I'd say really unique position of benefiting from the work that's been done in gene therapy. So in gene editing, so our gene therapy colleagues have spent a lot of time developing technology to deliver genes to cells. And we are able to take the benefit of that to deliver our CRISPR molecular scalpel to cells. So um, in that sense, We've, we are you know, bypassing a lot of pain that our colleagues have, uh, have, have had to deal with. And so I think we've been relatively successful so far in the delivery approaches that have been chosen because we're building essentially on the, in, in a sense, on the shoulders of giants. So we've benefited from, if you look back at the history of gene therapy, multiple um, previous attempts to try to do gene therapy with different uh, earlier generations of vector technologies, many of which um, have failed because we didn't fully understand how those vector technologies interact with human physiology. That's many of those problems have been solved through the fruits of you know and the, the efforts of those investigators and the, and the participation of the patients in those clinical trials to the point where we have vector technologies that work well enough that we can apply them almost without, without having to think about it. So those prior failures in gene therapy have helped us. I think it, it's inevitable over time that um, as we move CRISPR therapies into the clinic, we'll have some that are successful and some that aren't. So far, there have been successes. Uh, the, um, if you look at uh, some recent reports from uh, Sangamo, one of the other gene editing companies that uses a different nuclease technology, they've reported an initial patient treated with their gene editing approach for uh, beta thalassemia where the results look uh, really nice so far. So for me, fingers crossed. First of all, the patient benefits, and second of all, uh, success anywhere in gene editing begins to really drive home to people the amazing promise of the technology. And just to, to clarify for your audience, when I speak about a vector, that's a technology for delivering a gene uh, to a cell in, in a person. And so, uh, as I was mentioning, some of the uh, classic gene therapy approaches involve delivering new copies of genes. And what we do in, in gene editing technology is we use those same vector systems to deliver a way of expressing our molecular scalpel in the cell so that it can, t- it can carry out its surgical approach on the patient's actual own gene. Outside of the science itself, do you feel that there's something different about Casibia that makes it open to innovation, scaling, growing? I would, I guess, I would point to two aspects of Casibia that, for me, are, are fantastic. One I alluded to originally, which was the way the organization has been built by our chief executive officer, Jim Burns. Jim came in and from the very first day uh, wanted to create a culture of collaboration and uh, open, transparent communication and innovation. And he always finishes with execution, uh, with the idea that you you can do all the talking you want and you can be super innovative, but if you're not executing in a consistent way and moving your projects forward and timelines to the clinic, it's kind of meaningless. So that's something that we we all internalize. The the other aspect of uh, Casibia that's uh, if you look at our the way we've approached each of our research programs, they're differentiated from e- each of the things that most of the other uh, companies are doing in each area. So our tolerance program, our, our uh, gene editing program, which focuses on T-cells, is focused on inflammatory diseases as opposed to cancer-related diseases. So that makes us a little bit unique among the CRISPR companies. 
our liver editing program and our retinal programs both focus on ways of transiently delivering the, the, the molecular scalpel. So if you can think of, uh, about it, we could deliver the molecular scalpel in a way that sort of leaves the scalpel in the body, and we've chosen to focus on technologies where that scalpel not only goes in and does its job, but it, it, it dissipates or goes away uh, using various uh, approaches. And we think that's important for a number of reasons, but the simplest way to think about it is if you leave a scalpel lying around with the genome and, and it cuts in the wrong place, that could be damaging to a cell over, over a decade or, or longer that that cell might be in a patient. Absolutely. So are there tools that your team is using, say, on the digital software side or digital technology side to help advance these projects? Absolutely. So when you develop a gene editing therapeutic, uh, you're looking for the ability of that molecular scalpel to work where it's supposed to. And you also want to make sure that it's not cleaving where it's not supposed to. And so there are software tools that have been developed in the academic community that we uh, utilize through uh, open source uh, licenses and uh, then modify them in, in the sense that we put graphical user interfaces both on the front end and on the back end to make them simpler for our scientists to apply. And so we use those to look for evidence of off-target cleavage and, and also help us do things like select uh, the best target site to go after with, with our molecular uh, scalpel. So that's one example of it. And I would say in our tolerance program, we're also we, um, expecting that when we these are, uh, it's a cell product. And so these, this is a cell product that would be administered to a patient and we would be looking for a response, but we will actually have samples of that product that, that are probably held behind. And we'll be studying those using high throughput sequencing techniques. Um, there's a few of them I can, uh, so we use those to sequence the T cell receptors. We use those to assess the epigenetic status of the cell. And so we anticipate over time building up large data sets where we will use clustering algorithms and things like that to try to identify properties of those cells that would be predictive of good responses in patients, for example. What are you most personally excited for out of everything that we just talked about for Casebia? Impact on patients. I'm a physician by training. And for me, Casebia, in the way it was formed, it was a unique opportunity to be able to really drive gene editing. So what's unique about Casebia is that we're a joint venture. So uh, this means that we're 50-50 owned by two partners. One of those partners is uh, CRISPR Therapeutics, which brings in foundational intellectual property from CRISPR, uh, from the CRISPR-Cas field, as well as uh, the experience they've had in applying that technology. So we get to benefit from people there that already have, have expertise in using it. And then on the other side, uh, Bayer AG, which is a large pharmaceutical company with deep experience in drug development and also deep focused clinical experience in a number of different areas where we're allowed to apply the gene editing technology. So if you bring those together into Casebia, it's, it's an amazingly exciting opportunity to have these financial resources, this cutting edge technology, and the ability to drive things into the clinic. So let's segue into the industry moving forward. What are the, some of the major trends that you're seeing within the biotech and gene in editing industry now, and where do you think it will look like in five, 10 years? So the gene editing is actually in a, a very interesting place. Uh, it was, there was amazing excitement around, I think, the entire field in uh, 2014-2015 as the, all of the different CRISPR companies were formed. And now we're all at the point where we're beginning to, you're beginning to see products moving into the clinic. So for me, what, what's going to be incredibly exciting over the next two, three years, the near term is going to be watching how those products perform and really beginning to see the clinical impact of gene editing. 
What I think is going to be really exciting going forward is advancements in the platform technologies. So the existing uh, products are built off really what are first generation uh, molecular scalpels. And lots of people are working on next generation molecular scalpels, and we'll begin to see those being applied and coming through in second generation products. So I see uh, a continued uh, development of the overall platform technology. Also, delivery technologies are going to get better, and those combinations are going to create new ways of addressing diseases. And I think we're going to see a virtuous cycle of being able to apply this technology more and more broadly and more and more impactfully. So I couldn't be more optimistic uh, or, or excited about the opportunities in, in gene editing. For biotech, um, a little more generally, uh, I think gene editing is, is obviously one of the hottest places to be if you're a biotech company. But you're also seeing uh, biotechs that are not uh, just applying gene editing therapeutically, they're using it as a tool for drug discovery or target discovery. And I think we're going that those applications were a little behind the initial therapeutics, and we're going to begin to see the fruits of, of some of those uh, applications uh, coming forward as well in the form of, of perhaps uh, new types of standard drugs or some new biologics uh, that, that will be moving forward as well. What are your thoughts on the convergence of biotech and then non- scientific disciplines, things like uh, open source information, sharing economy, and so on. Are you working with those in any sort of way? I know we touched upon some of the stuff you're pulling in from academia, but are there any other areas? So we don't have any uh, direct connections with um, open source biology. I would say we're, we're very supportive of it. One of the really, um, again, cool things about CRISPR is that because it's relatively simple to use, uh, we know of high school science projects now that are applying CRISPR to, 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 do, to do things. So um, I think that aspect of it is fantastic because it gets people interested in science. And we need um, uh, more and more people trained and, and interested in science and, and uh, who, who love science and, are, and learn about it so that science continues to be uh, an important part of uh, I guess, our, our industry and, and our society. So while we don't directly interact with the open source people, I would say um, to the extent that, that uh, I'm familiar with that movement, I, I think I'm entirely supportive of it. And I would say I think that would be generally true of, of my colleagues throughout biotech. So with the public perception of tools like gene editing and CRISPR, how do you deal with the impact, say, of the CRISPR babies born in China or how CRISPR and gene editing is portrayed in movies and the like. Does that impact your role? And, and do you think that impacts the future of this particular discipline? I would say I'm going to address both that in two, two ways. For CRISPR and movies, um, I think uh, any exposure to science that's interesting and exciting is a plus. Um, there's a, uh, I think there's a series, CRISPR, right, that stars Jennifer Lopez. Yes. Um, that's not all bad, uh, right? That's the, it, it, it makes people realize that science can do really interesting and cool things. So for me, that visibility uh, and excitement around science are a plus. The CRISPR babies, to me, aren't so much a CRISPR uh, question, really as a question around um, a, a person, an individual who circumvented really every... Um, ethical norm in uh, development of any new approach. So if you look really carefully at the way uh, the patients were consented in that trial and how all that was handled, uh, the consents were actually completely deceptive. Uh, he didn't inform his institution uh, about what he actually was doing. 
So for me, it's that, that's really more, uh, in, in my view, uh, an institutional failure that's probably localized um, uh, to China and is something that I think they also recognize that way and, and are going are to deal with. So I, I don't think that really is a, is a particular criticism of the technology itself. Um, the way we're... I do recognize that um, because the visibility it gets uh, draws uh, interest into potential applications that have you know significant serious uh, ethical and moral questions that that it, it means that we need to be part of those conversations and make sure that we can e- express you know how CRISPR can be beneficial and to participate in the conversations about um, how society needs to see CRISPR and and if it need if there's regulatory um, processes that need to be put in place that, that we put in place things that so that people are comfortable that this technology is being applied for the the things that are societally beneficial and not not things that people uh, you know that make people scared or, or that people feel are really uh, morally problematic. And to add an additional point, I would say that uh, in the United States and, and for CB in particular, and I know it's true for all our gene editing competitors, we are entirely focused on editing of somatic cells for therapeutic p- uh, purposes in individual patients. Nobody uh, in, in, anywhere in the gene editing industry is, is contemplating germline editing. So on that note, how do you see regulatory science adjusting to the need for the increasing personalization required by the type of Work that you're doing. Yeah, it's a conversation, and uh, that's one that we're at the table with, and 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 the whole gene editing industry is at the table with. One of the unique challenges of developing a very personalized therapy where it targets a, a specific sequence that's only in a human is that you do not have animal models of that disease, and uh, that means it's going to be very hard to test some of these treatments before you you actually take them into patients. And what the FDA is beginning to recognize is that then be, needs to become a conversation as much between the drug developer and the FDA, but also the drug developer and, and the patient community and the FDA. It's really a much more of a three-way conversation because if these are patients who don't have other options, uh, they need to have, have a place at the table to say, yes, we will accept this risk or no, we, we don't want to accept this risk. So I see regulatory science increasingly adding that voice to the table and uh, setting the bar where the patients who suffer from the disorder um, set that bar, want that bar set. So Andy, I understand that Casebia recently presented at ASGCT. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? As a small biotechnology company, presenting your data uh, for a first time in sort of a large context audience is a really important event. So this is one of the first years we've gone to ASGCT to present really significant um, increments in our data. So we have 10 total presentations. Of those four are oral presentations, which is a signature that they were selected by the Abstract Evaluation Committee as being particularly uh, significant uh, advances or particular significant interest to, to the uh, audience at ASGCT. So we're going to be presenting updates on all three of our programs, uh, in particular uh, updates on some of our self-inactivating vector technology for retinal uh, gene editing, uh, up an update on our liver editing program showing how we can generate factor eight expression using a gene editing approach, and an update uh, on our tolerance programs showing evidence that we can generate T cells with anti-inflammatory process, uh, properties as well as a uh, close to final manufacturing process for actually making that as a cell product to be delivered to patients. So those are uh, all things that will be presented uh, in either poster or oral form and, and uh, for us a, a really big event at Casebia. And those posters will be available to the public? Absolutely. So the abstracts uh, were posted online on April 15th. 
Um, I'm not sure actually whether the posters uh, or presentations would be available, uh, but the, the content of the presentations in abstract form is available online at ASGCT.org. Wrap things up a little bit. We are a software company, so we're always interested in hearing our guest thoughts on the state of scientific software, how it's come along in the past 20 years, and the future of that. How is that impacting things at Casibia? So uh, I would say simplistically, the, the biggest impact is electronic laboratory notebooks, uh, for sure. Um, when I started, and I would say even up through 2010 or 11, the laboratory was largely paper notebooks and um, any investigator who's ever had to go back through two, three years of paper notebooks knows it's brutal to try to reconstruct exactly what was done in particular experiments. So having ELNs where you're able to um, uh, set a more standardized notation where you can search that, that's, that's a huge deal. Um, I would love to see a future where there's even more uh, integration of the ELN um, with all of your laboratory instrumentation to make the porting of data uh, even more transparent and simple. Um, and even I can imagine a time when uh, we'll see um, tablets or maybe even microphones at, at, the, at every bench where uh, people will be reading what they're doing into their laboratory notebook and simplifying some of the data entry processes. So to the extent that we can move from what is it, people typing notes in right now to a more seamless future where the, the data and the, and the notations you know, seamlessly flow into an electronic um, form, uh, I, I think that's what we're going to see over the next five to ten years for sure. You don't know much about Tetra Science, do you? <laughs> That's going to sound like a plug to our audience, and I swear to God, it's not. <laughs> well, anyways, that concludes this episode of the Tetra Science Podcast. Andy, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure.